0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church today here on Father's Day. I'm very glad to see each and every one of you. For guests, let me introduce myself. Uh, My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team, and to both here in the West and also those in the East Auditorium, we're very glad that you're gathering with us for worship today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a little bit hard to find, okay? It's just a short book in the Bible, maybe two or three pages long, depending on the version, but if you can go through like Genesis, Exodus, through the five books, then you get to Joshua, Judges, and it's before Kings and Chronicles, okay, so, and you're going to need to find it this morning. I want to encourage you to actually, if it's it's not really really your habit to look, this morning you want to look because we're going to be following a story that uh, is a little bit unusual is a good way to put it, and if you'll uh, read along, it'll make it a lot easier, all right? So while you're looking for Ruth chapter one, I just want to acknowledge from the father's perspective that um, we have an unusual event taking place in our family this week, namely that three of our family members are moving to Rochester, New York on Tuesday. So consequently, we've been spending quite a bit of time together as a family, Um, you know, because in the months ahead, we know that that's not going to happen very often. So we took a photo of the kids, of the little ones, just a few days ago, and I want you to see it. And uh, why are you seeing it? Because I'm the preacher and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in charge of what goes on the screens, usually, <laughs> in my sermons. <service>. So, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I've I, I got to tell you, this business of um, leading the family, if you will, as you do when you've got grandkids and I'm still trying to figure it out, trying to figure out how to be a, a great dad in the right moments and how to be a dad who speaks in the moments and how to be a dad who's sometimes silent. I, I, I've, I've, um, I've figured out this much, that sometimes you have to have family meetings, and I figured out how to have a family meeting if those of you are uh, fathers in the house or if you're in the setting where you're trying to have a, have a, a family meeting. You know how I've figured out how to get everybody to come, come around and say what's going on? Turn the Wi-Fi off, they'll all come running. So you're just a little slow on that one. <laughs> I do have a few one-liners for you if you'd like to hear Would you like to hear a few one-liners this morning on Father's Day? Okay, like, like I'm buying my son, Benjamin, I'm buying him a refrigerator for Christmas. It's going to be his Christmas gift. I can't wait to see his face light up when he opens it. <laughs> That's just bad, isn't it? That's just really bad. I should keep my day job? Is that what you're saying? You know what? I figured out what a father is. A father is someone who is, um, here's your job. Basically, it's a daily struggle to help a- keep a crazy person alive. That's my pr- primary job, right? Or finally, one for the kids, if you will. When it comes to those of you who aren't fathers yet, or you don't, you know, you're, you're a little kid, and you'd say, man, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd really like... Um, I put it this way, the best way to get a puppy at Christmas time. you want a puppy come Christmas? Beg for a baby brother. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough of this. (laughs) I do want to show you another photo and it's uh, not of my family, but part of your family. And that this is a photo of the most recent class of young adults here at the church who um, were involved in our baby dedication service uh, uh, just a few weeks ago. We do these every few months and uh, these are opportunities for parents to bring their kids together for the church to pray with them and over them and to bless those babies and uh, i want to ask you to congratulate those parents for their willingness to choose and say we are going to raise these kids to know jesus christ would you thank them for that (laughs) so for all the parents and households today we're going to see what we can learn about families from scripture today And what we're doing is we're taking on, we're carrying on with the sermon series we started back on Memorial Day, Pastor Josh started it. And the idea was this, since he turned 30 in June and I turned 60 in June and there's 30 years apart, was there something that we could say together that would say, these are some timeless truths that maybe lessons he's learned at 30 versus lessons I've learned at 60, and where does Scripture fall into all of that, or how does Scripture drive that? And so, in other words, we've been examining what timeless truths could be, lessons learned thus far that would apply to wisdom. We did that week one, life week two, love today is family, and then we're going to conclude the series next week by looking at ministry. And in today's topic about family, I have this concern that, any effort that I make today to address family life in one sermon, that's fraught with all sorts of vague generalities. I, I, I get that that, there's, that could be a caution we have today. It's gonna leave out sometimes the specifics about your particular family dynamics, but I think what we're gonna discover today is we look at a family that doesn't fit the typical profile, we, if you would expect, um, As we look at this family in scripture, you might be surprised at the similarities between your family and this family from the Bible. So we're gonna look at a family that's um, some 33 to 3,500 years old. Their story comes from that period of time. And like your family, perhaps, the story is not made up of two parents and two kids, a mortgage and a dog, okay? It's not like that at all. So let's see what we can learn together. Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, that's how we know it's some 3,300 to 3,500 years ago, it tells us when this occurred. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There's a drought of some sort. This is in Israel, and people are in trouble in terms of food. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, so you do have this nuclear family of two parents and two kids, all right, but it's going to change very quickly. The wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived. So at first, it's okay, everything's fine, but it gets a little bit difficult from here on. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She's now a widow. She was left with her two sons. They obviously grow up. Over a period of time, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malin and Killian also died. So we assume that if they get married in their 20s, they must have been teenagers when they moved. Does that make sense? You can sense what the family looks like. And so they're there 10 years, they die. And so uh, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And it appears then that this, this story is similar to some of the stories we face today. Families move where there's work. There's no work, there's no food, there's no way to make a living in Israel. So they go in search of food, they go in search of work, and there's a drought causing them to leave Bethlehem. And Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they travel from the western side of the Dead Sea, from where Bethlehem is, just outside Jerusalem. Here's a map that you're going to see. And they travel around, we think, probably through the, over the northern part of the Dead Sea, more so than the southern part. It's easier to get on the northern side. And they travel all the way around to Moab. And the family, that Moab, by the way, is where present-day Jordan is, all right? So there gives you a sense of what's where, where they are geographically. And the family is really taking a risk. Jewish faith was not practiced in Moab. And, um, So they're going to be among strangers. They're going to be people who are different language and they're going to be among people who have a different religion. And there's an expectation for Jews of that day, that if you leave Israel, first of all, you don't convert, you stay Jewish, you don't convert to the religion of the Moabs or the Moabites, and then eventually come back to live in Israel. So in the process of some 10 years or so, tragedy strikes, dad dies the boys grow to be men, they marry Moabite women, and they, they promptly die as well. So suddenly you have three widows without, if you will, the support, the financial support, and the covering, the male covering of any sort in a culture where the independence of women was not allowed. And so what are they gonna do? Naomi decides, we're gonna go back to Bethlehem. And the two daughters-in-law start out the journey with her and according to Jewish law here's what's supposed to happen they are to go home to Bethlehem Naomi is to remarry she's supposed to have children namely sons who would then be responsible to marry these widows who would be potentially 25 to 30 years older than them all right so read with me what happens chapter 1 verse 6 when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out of the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. She says to them, now, you know what? Girls, you should go back to your mother's home. And may the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She kissed them goodbye. They weep and... Say to her, "Mm -mm. we're going to go to be with you and your people. But this is what Naomi says. No, return home, my daughters. And here's why. If the Jewish custom is that I'm going to have to marry, provide sons for you to be husbands, she says, return home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. She's past menopause, it would appear. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, if when I have, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. So here's what's happened. One daughter-in-law is going to say, okay, this is a reasonable plan, uh, Naomi, I'm going to go back to Moab and I'm going to try and find a husband there. And so she heads back. But the second daughter-in-law, a woman by the name of Ruth, says "Mm-mm." she has a different approach. And we're going to read where she chooses to stay with Naomi. She says, where you go, I'll go. And in essence, what she's saying, my future is tied to your future. And what's most important to me is who you worship. That's who I want to worship. And your God is more important to me than my return to a past. So you lead, I'll follow. Where you live, I'll live. As a matter of fact, where you die, they can bury me there when I die. So read with me verse 14. At this they wept aloud again, and Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. No, she says. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to return back from, or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so in verse 22, what happens? After the journey, in verse 22, they return back to Bethlehem. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. Just, no, notice this, when's this taking place? When did they arrive? Just as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, here's, what's, here's what we understand. Apparently, the drought and the famine in Israel has abated. They've heard about it in Moab, and they're going to say, okay, there's work there again. There's a possibility that we could survive there. And uh, the harvest is now in full swing of the barley barley fields. and the Long story short is this, that Ruth, when they get back to Bethlehem, there's a guy that owns a lot of the farms. His name is Boaz, okay? And he's, he's kind of got all the fields, and, and she meets Boaz, and he is smitten with her. He falls in love with her, and he says, I want you to marry me. So here they've come all the way back from Moab. Ruth is arriving in this place she's never lived before, chapter four, and she, uh, she discovers, hey, This guy is there. He falls in love with her. They get married. Read with me. Chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And so what happens then? Verse 16. Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Okay? He was the father of Jesse. Jesse. The father of David. Make note of that. We're going to come back to that yet later today. So frankly, friends, what you have here is the tale of family life. It's got all sorts of ins and outs and struggles and fear and joy and love. and Well, it would appear to me that whatever your family has faced in the past, whatever it will face in the future, it's all found in this, in this story. And as has been our custom throughout this series, based on the story, kind of unpacking it, allow me to make a few observations that are informed by 60 years of living, if you will, as well as, more importantly, informed by the scripture. So, if you will, some timeless lessons thus far regarding family. The first one is this, that all families experience difficulties at some point. You certainly have it here in the story of Ruth. You have this difficulty and this struggle and this, uh, how does this all work out? And you see it in our time as well. It's not new. It's not only found in the Bible. It's found in our own day and time. I, I came across. Maybe you saw this this week. It was across the internet. An obituary was published in Minnesota. This. Um, uh, I was, this woman died on May 31st, so it's just a few weeks ago that she died. And this is how the obituary reads. She, she died in Springfield, Minnesota. Kathleen Demlo. so remember the names. Demlo was her married name, Shunk. Kathleen Demlo Shunk was born March 19, 1938, to Joseph and Gertrude Shunk. So there's her parents, the Shunks of Wabasso. She married a Demlo. She married Dennis Demlo at St. Anne's in Wabasso in 1957 and had two children, Gina and Jay. Fifty-seven, they get married, but in 1962, some struggle entered the family. In 1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle Demlo, And with that, that Demlo family, or that group, then moved to, to uh, California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were raised by her parents in Clements, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Schunk. So the grandparents raised the, gra- the grandkids. She passed away on May 31st, 2018, in Springfield, Minnesota, and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay. And they understand the world is a better place without her. Is anyone else uncomfortable? I mean, they're hanging the dirty laundry out on the line, and they're blowing in the breeze for everyone to see, right? It says to me, there's a struggle. There's a lot of pain there. The pain is so deep. Hey, when mom dies, we're gonna tell everybody about it. There's not only pain, there's bitterness and anger. What happened in that family? I don't know all the details. I do know there's also a lot of pain in Ruth's story. I mean, think about all the things they face that we see in Scripture here. There's famine we're running for our lives, if you will, in order to, we're moving in order to live. We've got a dead dad, so widow number one. We've got two young men who die, leaving two young widows, so you've got widowhood three times over. There's the long walk back from Moab all the way to Bethlehem. There's this bitter part parting where, where one daughter-in-law says, I'm going to go back to Moab, the other one says, I'm staying with you. And the scene, frankly, seems bloated with agony, doesn't it? And I'm using the word bloated intentionally because I came across a story a few days that describes this sort of bloated calamity. I want you to take a look at a photo. This is an Airbus airplane. It's not a great-looking plane. It's called the Airbus Beluga, like as in whale, all right? They're only building five of them. And uh, the, the goal of the plane is to be able to transport other planes. Do you see other planes going in that big, bloated space. Isn't that amazing? They can, they can lead them in there. Now, they've never flown them yet. All they do is still testing about how they get the planes in and out. And, and right now, uh, it's, it, this testing is a, is a shaking. They've got it in a factory and they are shaking the fire out of it. They've attached, four, the engineers have attached 14, they're called electrodynamic shakers. Long metal poles attached to various parts of the aircraft, the wings, the the engines, you know, the the tail, the the wingtips and so forth. And these long rods are going back and forth. They're pistoning back and forth like this so that they can see if the plane is going to break apart with something that engineers called flutter. If you're an engineer, you might understand that. And they don't want it to flutter. And so they'd say, rather flutter on the ground than in the air. The pilots are very pleased about that. Rather, we'd learn about this on the ground. If it's gonna break apart from too much shaking, we'd like to know it now. And my observation is this. At points, all families become bloated. All families, somewhere along the line, face pain, And then there's shaking that comes along and you wonder, will we survive this? And you go, man, I'm just so glad we're not in the air right now. We're not in this under extreme stress. And you go, actually, the stress is pretty good and it feels like all those rods are attached to us and they're going back and forth, back and forth. Struggle comes to families, friends. It's quite plain from our own experience. It's quite plain from scripture. Observation number one. Observation number two. The nature of family is not always apparent. Think about the makeup of this family in the book of Ruth. The story starts with two parents and two kids, but it ends up with two women. The family ends up looking completely different than it did at the beginning. Two women, Naomi and Ruth, make up a family. And think about how families are formed these days. We have families who are Where single parents are in the household with children as a result of a divorce or we have um, Single parents because they were never married or we have people who are single without anyone else in the house And yet because it's a household, there's the family one person if you will is the family in that house We have couples who've never had children for a variety of different reasons. The list goes on of how families are formed and what they look like And I would suspect here today that that list of all the different st- styles or types of families might reflect your family or one like it. And what I find really comforting in that or helpful in that, maybe a better word, is that those sorts of families are found in Scripture. So if you fit the profile and say, uh, this is this isn't what I expected, you need to know you're not alone. It's fair to say that Ruth and Naomi had many years when their family did not appear to be, if you will, that is the right word, ideal. They didn't, they didn't feel like they made the ideals. They didn't, put it this way, they didn't grace the cover of a Hallmark card, right? But in those similar moments in your life within your family, note this, that Naomi and Ruth, their story together led it adds credence to your story because scripture shows us families in crisis, families in transition, families like the families of today. In other words, you're not alone. And to that end, your family's present setting can shift. Observation number three, because perhaps you're here today saying, Hey, uh, Wayne, you're perfectly correct. My family right now is, is there's lots of that shaking going on and the pain is bloated like that plane. I'd say it this way, Wayne, my family setting right now is a mess. There's struggle and pain, and I don't really know how the story is going to come out well. Well, friend, it may take some time, just like for Ruth and Naomi. It may take some time to see good in the midst of your struggle. But there's a fascinating tidbit in Ruth's story. Ruth, this woman from Moab, was not Jewish, right? This woman came from a place outside the normal family, if you will, from outside the bloodlines of Jewish faith. But she ends up, think about this, this woman who's from the outside, who doesn't fit the profile. This woman ends up with her life story being a focused part of Scripture. I love this, that God honors this family by saying, I want to tell you their story. It's in the Bible. And there's something else that's quite fascinating about her story. Again, she's not Jewish. If you move forward, say, thirteen to 1,500 years after this story, what happens? Jesus is born, he dies, he he rises again, he goes to heaven, and his disciples say, we want to tell everybody the story of who Jesus is, and one of those disciples is a fellow by the name of Matthew. Matthew writes a book, we call it the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's primary, what he really wants to do in his book is he wants people to understand how Jewish Jesus really is, and how he is actually of royal blood, that he comes from the blood of David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. And the, the, the early writers of scripture said, the Messiah is going to come out of David's bloodline. And you know what's absolutely really cool about this Ruth story and Jesus being fully Jewish and the Messiah and coming from King David and everything? Look who shows up in that genealogy. We read this in Matthew chapter 1. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of... Oh, who was the guy she fell in love with, right? The guy who owned all the barley fields, the the barley farm? His name was Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And if you continue reading through the genealogy of Jesus, you go from David all the way down to Jesus. How incredible is is it that this woman, Ruth, gets included in the list. Jesus is one of her descendants. So someone from outside the bloodline not only ends up in scripture, but ends up as the great, 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 whatever, grandmother to Jesus many generations later. In other words, what's happening here? God is saying, your family story may be a little bit unclear. It may be a little bit unconventional. It actually may be completely crazy with all kinds of twists and turns, and it may not fit the profile but there can be really better days because your family can impact others for good. Guys, next slide, if you don't mind. Because here's what's going on. It's saying where our family was, as if we walk with God, if we say, I'll, I want my God to be your God, then there's going to be a better outcome. And it may take a while for that to be seen, but we're going to get there. Your family can impact others for good, which leads me to what I believe is the most important part of my message today. See, we could speak to all kinds of issues of family life. We could speak to the issues of um, taking care of older people. You see see that in Scripture. Scripture tells us to do that. We could see stories of how we're supposed to take care of little ones and dedicate them and put our hands on them and bless them. We don't have time for all of that. Instead, I want to do something a little bit different today. Normally, I would end a message um, with, if you will, some sort of... um, story or a tale that would give you a, something compelling to say, okay, that was really cool and how it all came. But today, I, I want to give a precise pastoral word to my congregation, if I may. I want to step into that role and in, 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 beyond just saying this is what scripture says. Uh, how, how am I saying this? Um, I've been waiting a lot of time, long time, a lot of months to say what I need to say in the next few weeks, in the next few moments, if I may. Uh, because this, I believe, is a direct word from the Lord for some of us here today. In regards to family life, in regards to what we see coming out of Ruth's story, where there's all this pain and struggle, can I remind you, friends, that when she says, I'll go where you go and I'll worship the God you worship, and I'm willing to be buried where you're buried, what's she telling us? That seeking the goal of a good life is not the goal of family life. Sometimes here in the American world, in the West, you know, Western culture, we have this dream of two parents and two kids, a dog, a house with a white picket fence. But can I tell you, friends, that is not the sum goal of a Christian's life. Because think about this, if that was the goal, if we were Christians so that we'd have two parents and two kids and a dog and a house and a white picket fence, if that was the goal that the Bible calls us to, what are you going to do with the people of ancient days who followed Jesus Christ and had none of that? Or what are you going to do with the people who don't live in the Western culture where those sorts of opportunities are never coming their way and yet they follow Jesus Christ with every fiber of their being? Some of us here myself included, we indeed are living the good life. We have the American dream, if you will, and I praise God for that. I'm included in that group. But I need to tell you, friends, having the good life has never been a personal goal. It's never the goal that we communicated to our children. Instead, families, I want you to hear this clearly. Regardless of what your family looks like, okay, here's the goal of life for every household that calls itself Christian, whether it be a one-person household or whether there be 17 in the, in the place, okay? The goal of a Christian's life is to worship God through following Jesus Christ. And so those of us who are adults, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone who has children who are under our, the influence in our lives, we, our goal cannot be to make them, make that 10-year-old the best athlete on the ball field. It's nice, but that's not the ultimate goal. Our goal can't be to make them the best artist or the best guitar player or the smartest student in school, the richest adult in the future. If any of that comes their way, praise be to God. If any of it comes that, their way because of your influence, be glad and proud. But I watch with some dismay, I must say, how those very admirable traits we want our kids to do well on the ball field, on the dance floor, on, in, in, you know, in the band room, in 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 the library academics or whatever the case i watch how those very admirable traits at times become the consuming goals of family life and for christians the primary goal of christian adults regarding the children in our lives is to teach them to love and serve jesus christ first it's not to be the best ball player and it's not to be the best guitarist i hope they get to be that but that's not the goal if we get the two things confused about their, their achievements versus their service of God and their love of God, we're, we end up with, with confused adults. So here's the question I would ask all of us today. Are you approaching the Christian development of the children around you, particularly if they're your kids, are you approaching your children with the same intensity you have for his or her development on the ball field or dance floor? Are you approaching that same with that same intensity? Is that how you're approaching your concerns regarding the Christian development? Which gets your most attention? Where are you most passionate? Where's the focus of your family's discussions while at the dinner table? Now I don't want to imply that Less than I had it all figured out or have it all figured out and others do not. And I don't want to imply that if you do it all right, that there, that kid's going to follow Jesus. And there are situations and settings I know of where parents, are, their hearts break. As your pastor, I get that, okay? I'll tell you what we did. It's, it, here's what we did. And you may have, and I hope you have, other legitimate and helpful approaches that you can tell me about. But this is what we did. We have, our kids are grown. We have grandkids now. But our goal... We wanted our children to become adults who loved Christ and saw the world through his eyes of compassion. So what, how do we do that? We kept our children in church and in youth group, engaged in other Christian, with, the, with other Christians always. There was no debate about that. They were in worship always. They were in youth group always. And if something else came up on the calendar, we had to figure out how are you going to get to church? How are you going to be involved in youth group? We sent both of them overseas as youngsters. Jacqueline was 15 when she went to Russia and Ben was 18 when he went to Africa. Both without us. We didn't send them with like a group from this church. Okay. We wanted them to see the world apart from their American eyes without strong handholding by mom and dad. We wanted them to say, Hey, to grow and get a worldview that's different than just what we have. I mean, we have this really cool space called Decatur, Illinois. And we love living in America like you. We could all live in a variety of different nations, but we chose to live here. However, we wanted our kids to have global eyes, not an American myopia. Because people outside the U.S. live in desperate settings. I know we've got people who live in desperate settings here. But the opportunities that are here are, are are limitless. Overseas, that is not the case. There are not opportunities for two parents and two kids, a house and a dog overseas. And beloved, I got to tell you, I've had conversations, many conversations with adults and parents about these matters in the past many times. Two conversations in particular just have been under my skin for some period of time, particularly troubling chats with fathers about their daughters. It so happened that both were about men came to me about their daughters. And this is the way the conversation went. We're not attending church anymore. Why is that? Well, I'd like to come, but my daughters aren't interested and my wife won't force the issue. They're more interested, this is the language, they're more interested in their dance teams. Both guys, tears coming down their cheeks. Sad moments. It wasn't that they were in another church. I mean, I'd like people here, but if they're in another church, fair enough. I get it. No, here's what was going on. The kids, the children's short-term wants were overruling their long-term needs regarding their spirituality, wants versus needs. Those young kids are now adults. One is still a teenager, but they're all now moving into adult responsibilities and have no sense, when I see them in the community, they have no sense of God's work in their lives. It's tragedy that unfolded in front of me over the years past. So, if you will, a timeless lesson from a 60-year-old keep your children's long-term spiritual needs, your primary focus, by teaching them of God's purpose for their lives. See, negotiating with your kids about their involvement or church youth group or spirituality at home, that's not an option. There's no negotiation on that. You know, Model faithful and consistent worship and spirituality. That is the purpose of their lives, worship and serve God. I see too many and know of too many young adults where they left the church because their parents didn't force the issue, and they've left the church. Well will your kids always like it? Probably not, but you're not in the like business, right? Adults, we are in the leading and teaching and loving business. And we don't look for successful children per the culture's definition. Successful Christian families raise, they birth children, they raise and teach the next generation of servants who serve Jesus Christ in this community, and I pray around the world. In the meanwhile, this is what we'll do. We pray that all our children will take Ruth's life approach. She said to her mother-in-law, where you go, I'll go. Here's my prayer for the children of our congregation. That they would say, you adults, you parents, lead me to God. Where you go, I'll go. Where God calls me to go, I'll go. How you live, I'll live. And I'll worship who you worship. Let's pray together. Lord, I've got a lot of friends here today, and uh, I don't want to assume, God, that we've all got it figured out, that I've got it all figured out. I don't want to assume or portray God in any way that, man, this is an easy thing that we've talked about today. No, there's a lot of pain. It's at times pretty bloated, and what our families face, God. I know of settings, Lord, here today where the stress and the struggle and the... The questions, I mean, (laughs) the questions, it's a list that's longer than we have words for. God, I pray in the midst of that, that we would experience an understanding that we're in this for the long haul. We're in this, Lord, because um, you sent Jesus, he died, he rose again. Our sins are forgiven, and it's not just for us, but it's for the generations that come behind us. It's for the children under our influence, either in our homes or here at the church. God, I thank you that our goal is not a short-term uh, thing that's only gonna be a 15-year uh, run. That's great, God. We all have the things that we wanna see happen at the house. and guess we're all looking for the house with the picket fence, yeah. But Lord, let us never confuse that American idealism, as good as it is, with the, with the call of Scripture for us to worship you first. So that regardless of the shape of our family, regardless of the needs of our family, Lord, that <laughs> you got two women 3,300 years ago and they're making an incredibly wise decisions, Lord, to walk after you. The shape of their family is not, I don't know how you describe it, Lord, it's a different shape. And yet you were there in the midst of that. For the places, Lord, where our family shapes are different, or they are what we are, what we are, God. Thank you that in this story we learn we're not alone, And that you can work through every setting that we find. Work in our hearts, God, we pray. In Christ's name.